Scripture passage this morning is John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. John chapter 20, 10 through 18, Pew Bible page 1,686. John chapter 20, verse 10 through 18. This is following Peter and John's discovery of the empty tomb. Before we read God's word, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, by your spirit, may you enlighten to us. May you show us where Christ meets us and transforms us in this place. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. And the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Spiritual Disciplines for Ordinary People, writes this on page 188-89. Some churches give people the idea that the only way to transformation is knowledge. There's an assumption that as people's knowledge of the Bible rises, their level of spiritual maturity rises with it. Knowledge about the Bible is an indispensable good. But knowledge does not by itself lead to spiritual transformation. When Paul urged the Christians at Rome to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, he was thinking of far more than just the acquisition of information. Mind refers to a whole range of perceiving, understanding, valuing, and feeling that in turn determines the way we live. While knowledge is vital and should be prized, it also poses some dangers. It often demolishes humility. The sobriquet know-it-all is never used as a compliment. The Bible itself contains some warnings. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Both human experience and the Bible teach that increased knowledge, even knowledge of the scriptures, does not automatically produce transformed people. Maybe you're asking, Carrie, why are you starting this sermon with this thought? Well, one of my professors 
has said something that stuck with me. He says that Reformed churches have great doctrine that we're always trying to live up to. And other churches don't have the best doctrine, but they live better than it. And I think it's the case that we, as Reformed believers, can be stuck in this trap. The knowledge is what leads to transformation. That if we memorize the catechism, if we memorize the Belgian Confession, if we know all five points of Calvinism, if we do all these things, that, that that's really what's going to change us. And, and it's true. I'm sure many of us can even think of people who, man, they knew everything. But they're not with us today. And they're not around. We ask ourselves why that is. And we think to ourselves, we thought that them knowing so much must have meant that they really were Christians. But it's actually only an encounter with the risen Lord can change us. A true and real spiritual transformation. And it's not something that is, has to be this great and wonderful and uh, amazing experience where you go from drug addict to uh, every Sunday Christian clean. For many of us, it's, it's a walking daily with the Lord. It's a, from our youth, from our baptism as infants to every day. We can't look back on a day and say, that's when God changed my heart. That's when I had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. But that's what happened. A little bit here by there. You're a different person. And it's not, a, not just about what you know. It's about who you know. It's not that you just know something about somebody. Like stats you can read of an athlete. Oh yeah, that's so and so. They have so many home runs. They have so many RBIs. They have so many... But that you know that person. That's what I want to talk about this morning. An encounter with the risen Lord changes us. And we're going to see that in the life of, of Mary. This picture that John gives us here. There's two points this morning. The first is asleep in sorrow. Mary is stuck in this idea, this, this idea that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. She hasn't come to terms with the fact that Jesus is alive. So she's asleep in sorrow. But as she is faced with her Savior, as she realizes and recognizes who he is, she's awakened to joy. So asleep in sorrow, awakened to joy. Sleep in sorrow, verses 10 through 15. Let's look first at that verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes. To tell the others about the empty tomb. But Mary, she returned to investigate more because she was overwhelmed by a great sadness. This is the woman, if you, if you know your, your uh, gospels, that Jesus exercised seven demons from. She was someone who was in the lowest of the lowest of places. And this man, Jesus, transformed her life 
freed her from her bondage. And so there is a close connection. There is an intimate relationship there. She's a trophy of grace. And she had great love for the Lord because of that. And Calvin says here, Christ had brought her out of the lowest hell that he might raise her above heaven. But in this moment, still stuck on the idea that Jesus' body had been moved, she felt a deep sorrow. And that points us to the reality that our Lord would have to open her eyes to the truth of the empty tomb in order to lift her from her state of sadness. And so she looks into the tomb. She stood outside and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb. You know, sorrow, great sadness, can often turn us inward to self-pity at the loss we have experienced. Mary herself, we are told, looked into the tomb, not for a risen Jesus, but maybe she was hoping that somehow his body had been returned, that it all had been a fluke. Maybe she was just seeing things. The loss of Jesus' physical presence in her life weighed heavily upon her. And now to realize that there won't even be a resting place of his remains, somewhere she can visit to be reminded of him, it was too much. But her grief rested on a mistaken conclusion that Christ was dead and gone forever. But it's natural and it's commendable in the circumstances that what she is showing here is a genuine expression of devotion. Mary was at the cross when Jesus died. And here she is, weeping. At his empty tomb. But she's looking for him in the wrong direction. You see, if any of us desire to find the risen Jesus, we cannot keep looking into the empty tomb. If any of us desire to find the Christ, can't keep looking where his body used to lay. The empty tomb only points to an even greater reality. In fact, I'm so thankful that today we're taking communion because often when we take communion, we focus upon, we think of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is understandable because communion is about the body and the blood, right? But communion points us also to a greater reality, not just the cross, but the wedding feast of the Lamb, where all of us will be resurrected and in our perfect bodies, feasting with the bridegroom of heaven. And so it's important that we don't stop at the empty tomb. It's important that we don't look there where his body laid and think that's the end of the story. And if we do that, then we should take Paul's advice. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We of all people are most to be pitied because we are still in our sins. But Mary, she's looking in the wrong direction. She's looking into the empty tomb. But in reality, Jesus was not dead and in her past. 
but alive and right behind her in the garden. We cannot linger look, looking into the empty tomb. We must eventually turn around to see the Savior. This is the truth that would awaken Mary from her sorrow. This is what will revive us as well. When she encountered these two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? You see, these are God's ministering spirits. They're there to express that God has been there and is at work and to communicate messages from the throne room of God. They're there to say something significant has happened here, something of great significance, of the utmost significance, the most important event in all of human history. And if Mary, she was impressed or uh, were shocked, scared or surprised by the presence of these two angels, she didn't show it, she responded, to their question, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. It's uncertain if she recognized them from before, or if she was so distraught that she simply thought they were workers there at the tomb. We can ponder and wonder, maybe there's so many tears in her eyes, she can't tell that these are angels in white and and uh, we know that angels can change their appearance so as not to be so frightening when they appear. Nonetheless, they're here, God's heralds of the imminent self-disclosure of the risen Jesus. Mary, so wrapped up in her sorrow, she does not respond to them as heavenly visitors. She does not see them as those who have come to, say, to show and to say that there's more to this story, Mary. This empty tomb is not here because somebody's taken Jesus' body. This empty tomb is here because death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Now we could possibly read this question as a, a caring and concerning question to a woman that they see was in much distress, distraught. But in retrospect, this question could also be seen as a mild rebuke, meant to provoke Mary to think about why she is not believing in what Christ said would happen, that he was to rise from the dead on the third day. And think about what Jesus said as he disguised himself and appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they were discussing and they thought, we, we believe that this Jesus was, was the Messiah, but you know they crucified him the other day. And he said, you foolish and hard-hearted, did you not know what the word of God said? And Jesus himself had said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, and on the third he will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. Jesus himself said to the unbelieving people, you, all you who want a sign, the sign of Jonah is all that you will get, where the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then rise again. Jesus said these things. And here's Mary, in her sorrow, not believing 
these things. Truly thinking that Jesus is gone. He's dead and he's gone forever. Woman, why are you crying? That's a question. Because she shouldn't be crying. If she was believing in the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? If she was believing that the tyranny of the devil was over and that the people of God have entered into a new and heavenly place, that we now in Jesus Christ are new creations, new creatures, that we have resurrection power, that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is now at work within us. If she was believing what Jesus had said, that he is not dead, that he cannot die, and that he is forever alive, forevermore, she would not be crying. But what are we going to do? Are we going to stand over Mary and judge her and say, Mary, get it together. Don't you know Jesus is alive? Well, I want you all to think of moments in your life where you have been in the midst of deep sorrow and sadness. And you have lost sight of the resurrection. The great hope that we have as Christians. Have you ever been there? I have. I have been in the midst of a time that felt like it was so great that I despaired of life itself. And if you think that's wrong for me to say, then just ask the Apostle Paul. He said it himself in 2 Corinthians. Life is full of suffering. And Christ himself said we are to pick up our crosses and follow him. And our life follows the pattern of our dear Savior. Humiliation before exaltation. Humility before honor. And that's understandable. We, we come to grips with that. But in the midst of that humiliation, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that darkness, whatever it may be, financial troubles, loss of a loved one, uh, 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 brokenness and distrust, relationships that have been shattered, people who have hurt you deeply, harmfully lied against you, deception, infidelity, whatever it may be, when we are in the midst of that, do we lose sight? We lose sight of the resurrection. Of the hope. The great hope of all believers. That whatever it is that we may be suffering right now, it is not worth comparing to the weight of glory we will, we will receive because of it.
So my encouragement to you is don't stand over Mary. Rather see how we can often be Mary and look at an empty tomb and forget the resurrection. In this moment, though, Mary simply answers this question as she would to anyone who inquired. They took her, Lord, and she did not know where they put him. She's lost in the thought that Jesus is really gone and with him all true and lasting joy and hope. Verse 14. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were told did not recognize Jesus because their eyes were restrained. But why is it exactly that Mary does not recognize Jesus? We can't know for certain, but a very strong possibility is that she had no expectation to encounter a living Jesus. The sorrow that consumed her was one in which she had accepted the forever loss of her precious Lord. And what I want you to think of is, have you ever ran into a person you know in a place and under certain circumstances you would never have ever even expected to bump into them? Maybe you're visiting another state and you're somewhere in this other state and you run into someone that you went to Ileana with and you think to yourself, how is this even possible? And you don't recognize them at first because it's so out of place. It's in a place, in, a, in circumstances that you would not have ever even imagined seeing them. And so at first, it, it doesn't click. You have to connect those dots. You have to make that connection. And so here Mary is confronted with the very man she believes is dead and whose body has been stolen and taken from the tomb and taken somewhere else. And so some living man standing there talking to him, talking to her, she could not possibly connect those two things. Her weeping and broken hardness over the missing dead body of Jesus could have had a strong influence in blinding her soul to the recognition of the bodily presence of the living Christ. You know, consuming grief can do that kind of thing. It was because Mary did not believe that Jesus could be alive that she at, at first refused to see him alive. And Jesus responded to her. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She's still asleep in sorrow. She shall be awakened to joy. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. When Jesus names her, she awakens from her sorrow to a world of joy. From that moment on, she hears him and sees him as the living Savior and explodes into happiness. You see, this is the snapshot of the great shepherd of the sheep calling out and those who are his knowing his voice. And when we read this moment of him saying Mary and her eyes being opened and awakened to joy and seeing her Savior there, 
It's very easy for any of us to take Mary's name out and put our own name in there and to know that each and every one of us has been called in the same way by name. And it's when our names are called and we hear the voice of the great shepherd that we are awakened to joy. The scales fell from her eyes and she recognized that it was Jesus. The scales fall from our eyes and we go from that moment not simply to knowing of someone, but to knowing someone. Knowing of Jesus to knowing Jesus. A real encounter with the risen Jesus. A real relationship. A real interaction. A real true connection. Rabboni, teacher, she said to him. Now, this is not the greatest Christological confession. It's not like Thomas's that we're going to see, my Lord and my God. But as Carson says, at this point, she was so enthralled with the restored relationship, she wasn't contemplating its theological implications. She was just glad to see that Jesus was alive. She was overwhelmed with joy to be reunited with the one whom she thought was lost forever. John Calvin in his commentary says, This is a secret and wonderful change effected on the human understanding when God, enlightening her by his spirit, renders her clear-sighted, who formerly was slow of apprehension and indeed altogether blind. Besides, the example of Mary ought to serve the purpose of exhortation that all whom Christ invites to himself may apply to him without delay. What is Calvin saying there? He's saying that Mary is a picture of, for us, a picture of us, that any of us who desire to go to Christ should seek him. And when you seek him, you will find him. And when you find him, he will call your name and you will be transformed. You will have an encounter with the risen Jesus and it will change you. She clings to him. We can see probably at this time she's down on her knees. She's grabbing onto his feet. And so he responds to her. Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And this is a very interesting verse that we find in John's gospel for a few reasons. One is because, as many of you know, we, uh, we celebrate Ascension Day. And it doesn't happen on Easter Sunday. That happens after Easter Sunday, right? That Jesus ascends to the Father. That wouldn't make any sense if we had an Ascension Day on Easter Sunday. But here Jesus is on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, and he's saying, don't hold on to me, for I have not gone to my Father, and I'm going. I'm returning to my Father. So what is he getting at here? What exactly is he meaning? Why does John place this here in his gospel? Well, John places it here um, because there is not an ascension in John's gospel like there is in Mark, like there is in Matthew, like there is in Luke, but there is an importance to the moment of ascension. 
So when Jesus says, don't hold on to me, he's not objecting to being touched physically, since later he'll invite Thomas to do this very thing, touch his side, touch his hands, his wounds, right? Rather, the expression is a present imperative directed at an action that has already begun but should not be continued indefinitely. So Mary is at his feet, clinging to them, overjoyed to be reunited with the one whom she thought was gone forever. And so Jesus here is saying that she will not lose him by letting him go. And more importantly, that she will not have him present with her in the same way as before his death. He's saying, Mary, I'm in the process of ascending. This is not the new forever state. That I am going somewhere. And that you holding on to me is an expression of something that is not for this age. It's a passing thing. But that you will fully experience in the age to come. This is why he adds the words, for I have not yet returned. And I think it's better there to even say ascended. I have not yet ascended to the Father. His message that he gives to Mary to bring to the others expresses the reality that he will be with them physically for only a short period longer, where he will then transition to a permanent spiritual fellowship with them from heaven until the day comes when he comes to judge the living and the dead. The contrast is seen in the parallelism, parallelism in this verse. He tells Mary not to cling to him, but rather to go. To Mary, he says, he has not yet ascended. And to the others, he has her say, he will soon be ascending. To Mary, he desires to quiet her fears. But for the disciples and the church as a whole, he affirms that he will continue to minister to them even after his ascension into heaven. Think of the words that Jesus said, the Great Commission and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he goes up and he disappears. Have you ever thought about that? I'm with you. Bye. But that's the transition, is it not, from a physical presence to an earthly or to a spiritual presence. And Jesus says, this is a good thing. It is good that I must go, that I can pour out the Spirit, that I can send the Counselor, the Comforter, the Advocate to be with you. And Jesus said of his disciples, you'll do even greater things than I. What does he mean by that? Jesus, you're the Son of God. He means that when the Spirit is poured out, the whole body of Christ will have the power of God and the resurrection at work within them. The present tense of the phrase, I am returning or I am ascending, expresses that Jesus is telling her that he's in the process or condition of ascending. This tells us that the final outcome of this state is more glorious than the current one. It means that there's something greater than his continued bodily presence with the church in this world. He must ascend to sit at God's right hand and pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. There is something greater that he must still yet do. But there's also great profoundness in the message he gives to Mary to pass on to the disciples. 
but the transition that's taken place through his work. And it's one that I want us all to hear. Because these are words that invite us to the family table. They're words that tell us that we can come to the table of the Lord because we're brothers and sisters with him, co-heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God. He said to her, go tell my brothers, I'm returning to my father and your father, my God. And your God. Augustine said, Jesus says, my father and your father, not our father, because it is a matter of by nature, mine, by grace, yours. Christ saying, my God, under whom I also am a man, your God, between whom you and I, I am the mediator. This message gives Jesus, Jesus gives to Mary to pass on to the disciples is one of adoption of sons and daughters of all those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why he does not say, go and tell my disciples. Did you notice? He says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. You see, the resurrection and the soon ascension of Jesus is the justification and adoption of all those he came to save. And what do you think the table of the Lord Jesus Christ is if it's not a family meal? Where we all gather around and we partake together. And we express not only our union with Jesus Christ, but our communion with each other. Jesus, upon his resurrection, says, go tell my brothers, your brothers, my brothers. And the most amazing thing is that the book of Hebrews will even tell us that Jesus is our brother. Go and tell them that I'm returning to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. You see, this is the God who in our sinfulness looked upon us and gave us mercy. But this is the God that did not simply forgive us of our sins, wipe our slates clean, give us a new start. This is the God who poured out his spirit upon us so that we can not only experience the forgiveness that he has for us, but the new life, the new obedience, the resurrection life that he has for us. And this is the God that does not only save us and redeem us, but this is the God who calls us as his own and makes us his children. This is the good news of the gospel. Not only that you can be forgiven of your sins and receive eternal life, but that you can be called a son or 
daughter of God. That you can cry out, Abba, Father. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption. So Mary, she has the great privilege of going and sharing the good news with the other disciples. And she returns to do as the Lord had asked her. She announces to the disciples that the Lord is alive. Ketty says of this encounter that salvation is sweetest when it surprises a despairing soul. You don't want salvation unless you know that you're dead, unless you know that you need it, unless you know that you're in a desperate place. And that's what it is for Mary. She runs. She tells them the good news. These men would be in hiding. These men would be mourning the loss of their rabbi and all their hopes and dreams about their future when Mary arrived, kicked in the door, and told them, Jesus is alive. And much has been said about a woman being the first to announce the good news of the gospel. Calvin himself even said something that would probably be called insensitive in our day and age. He states, Here we behold the inconceivable kindness of Christ in choosing and appointing women to be the witnesses of his, of his resurrection to the apostles. For the commission which is given to them is the only foundation of our salvation and contains the chief point of heavenly wisdom. But the question is why an honor given to women should be seen as a reproach of Upon men, the reformer doesn't say. It was different times, okay. Rather, I believe we should see Jesus' use of women as the first preachers of the gospel, sharers of the gospel, right? As a fantastic way of teaching the whole church something about the nature of free grace in the ministry of the body of Christ. It shows us that Jesus is not a respecter of persons. The apostles were given a special and unique ministry, but they were not the founders of a new religion or personal dispensers of the grace of God. That if you wanted it, you only and could only go through them. You see, as long as they lived, the fact that Jesus chose Mary of Magdala to reveal his resurrection to first would remind them that they were called to be the humble servants of Christ. They could never pridefully proclaim that Jesus came first and revealed himself first to them. And this would help them to remember that Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man, and that all man, all men, women, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, come to him in the same way. And that's really what it means, isn't it, to be brothers and sisters? Is to see and understand, yes, we all have different purposes in this family. We all play different roles. But that does not make one brother more important than another brother. And one sister more important than another sister. The only brother who gets priority in this family is the head, Jesus Christ. And Mary's proclamation of the gospel teaches us that lesson. Remember, I told you, 
at the beginning of the sermon. That increased knowledge, even knowledge of the scriptures, does not automatically produce transformed people. And Mary is an example of us, of that very lesson. That it takes an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus to transform us, to change us from knowing about him to knowing him. I pray you all have encountered the risen Jesus and that you have been transformed by knowing him personally. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that we would come to see the risen Lord Jesus. Come to know him, not only of him. That we would be transformed by our union with him. And that all of us would waken from our sorrow to the joy of the resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.